my purposeful activity, but towards what end? What are we trying, what, what do we really want out of that? What kinds of labor actually are leading to well-being? What kinds of labor do we need? Is there a point where, are there other ways that we can meet people's needs? Is there, is there, are there other paths to well-being? This is Carbon Critic, a podcast from the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies. My name is Cecilia Oliveira, group leader for the Democratic Governance for Ecopolitical Transformations Research Group. Our starting point is to think of carbon emissions not as a simple chemical effect, but as a political component of our times. In today's first episode of Carbon Critique, we will talk with Cara Neil Daggett. She is professor in the Department of Political Science at Virginia Tech. We will discuss her book The Birth of Energy, Fossil Fuels, Thermodynamics and the Politics of Work. She traces back the genealogy of the term energy. Kara offers an innovative feminist and critical way to look at energy, demonstrating how the term has been so historically constructed in ways that connect energy and labor. Her book helped us to think about climate politics and to imagine other conceptions of energy. Alexandra Toss and I discussed this and much more with Kara. Enjoy the conversation. So, dear Cara, thank you so much for being with us today, with me and Alexandra. Thank you for making time to this conversation. Welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So, Cara, I need to confess to you, while reading your book, I couldn't uh, uh, avoid this smile in my face of uh, really watching this rebellion of energy that you bring up. So, I think my first question to you is what bothers you to question and write a whole book about energy? I sort of started by thinking about how carbon had become this code word in politics for um, almost like a polluting thing when, in fact, we know that carbon has all these meanings. It's a building block of, of life. And I was just interested in the history of that. And that led me, though, to what I thought was maybe a bigger question about how did energy come to mean fuel in politics? And what I knew very honestly, now I know that I didn't really know that much about energy, but what I knew about energy was that it could have all these different meanings, even within science. And I um, suspected it had this very rich history and I was I was just wanting to follow the way it became politicized and see where that led me. I really wasn't sure where it would. <laughs> so what do you, what do we miss out by not understanding that genealogy of energy that you trace? What do you were trying to make visible with this uh, genealogy? What I'm concerned about is that when energy gets picked up, it does so in a certain very specific framework that is not necessarily always wrong, it's just particular and parochial. And yet, energy has this cachet, and especially with its association as a foundational unit in physics, as if it's a natural fact or a universal knowledge or universal truth. So this sense of universality then 
justifies what I think is a very specific and particular way of thinking about energy. And what I mean by that is, is what I unpack in the book. It's an engineer's perspective on energy, how to put things to work and a concern with efficiency and a concern with productivity. And again, that kind of energy knowledge is useful in certain contexts and settings to, for example, figure out how to make a steam engine more efficient. But that, that way of understanding energy has kind of melded itself onto or helped to justify a broader set of ethics in the West about how we think about change in the world. And so that's what was interesting to me researching just thinking about the history of energy in science is to realize that energy was not actually a material thing that you can touch. It's an epistemology. It's a way of understanding the world. And physics is quite clear about this. It's a set of mathematical calculations. It's a way of naming how humans are trying to understand transformation and change. One of the first steps of your book uh, is to exercise the political etymology of the word energy and the cosmology disputes of the term. For example, you bring the Chinese understanding of energy with the key, Hinduism with prana or the stoic pneuma, uh, which means fire and air. But then you show how in the end Aristotle's idea for energeia was captured by European empire culture because of its proximity to work. Uh, so could you talk a bit about this etymology and the crucial role of the work energy uh, nexus in that field? Yeah, so with all those different terms that you mentioned, that was the part of the book where I was trying to dig into this longer history of an intuition or set of knowledges on the part of humans about conservation laws. So this sense that There is something conserved across change. There is identity through time. And how do we name that? How do we understand that? And I wanted to really um, recognize that that is a longstanding and diverse tradition of human thought. Um, and you mentioned some of the sort of highlight terms. The word itself, energy, in the West comes from Aristotle and is a philosophical and poetic word really until it gets adopted into to, um, the science of thermodynamics in the 19th century. And Aristotle invents this term to talk about um, the dynamic, his dynamic sense of goodness. So he wants to point to goodness as not being a static achievement, something that, you know, you just are good and then that's the end of the story. Aristotle wants to point out that goodness is a process. It's an ongoing kind of struggle of becoming toward goodness. And so energy from its first emergence as a word combines a sort of preference for dynamism with moral virtue. But of course, what Aristotle means by um, being at work, which is one way to translate that ancient Greek term, that kind of work that Aristotle is thinking of or what, what is meant by that kind of dynamism is very different in the 19th century when you start talking about um, the Industrial Revolution. 
So then taking this to another level would be to speak about energo power. So I would like to just very openly ask you whether you could explain to us and to our listeners uh, what it is and why it matters. Energo power is, um, I drew that directly from an anthropologist named Dominic Boyer, who is really a leader in the field of energy humanities. Um, and I believe his term is energopolitics, which is his way of pushing us to um, understand how fuel, and for me, it's understanding even more broadly how energy as this kind of, as a socio-material concept and set of fuels and, and um, relationships between bodies and machines. So how fuel slash energy is very important to politics and by politics i mean the arrangement of power now on the one hand you could look at that quite simplistically as kind of a resource politics which is what i i wanted to expand beyond and what i think energy humanities and scholars like boy are expanding beyond meaning it's not just this is another source of power and if you have more power than you you know, as a nation will be able to use that to your advantage materially. Not that that's not true, but um, this field of energy humanities and this concept of energo power is also about the way that, for me, is especially about the way that energy names a, a, an ethics, a set of narratives, expectations about what the good life is, and cultures about how we use and value all energy and activity energy names this conglomeration that really does have to do with justifying and also generating power differentials who has more power who has less power and as a simple example you can think about the way energetic metaphors and energetic thinking is very much present in the defense of the idea of meritocracy in the US. And so you will see um, often people, you know, uh, denigrated as being lazy or unwilling to work or having less energy somehow. And, and conversely, the celebration of capitalist elites as energetic um, doers. So I'm interested in unpacking those assumptions about energy, which um, in the book I explore it as energetic racism. But there's also, of course, gender and class going on as well. Generally, the relationship between energy and work is very central to your analysis. And there I also have a quote from your book where you write, uh, quote, To become a citizen in carbon democracy was to become a waged worker, a valorized subject. Um, the drive for equitable inclusion in the waged work system would catalyze many citizen movements in the 19th and 20th century, uh, including civil rights and women's movements. And according to this political logic, a loss of energy as a threat to jobs would pose a threat to democracy itself. You conclude that energy needs to be reconceptualized for uh, societies to overcome their dependence on fossil fuels. 
Um, why, in your view, is it so important that we as a society change how we understand energy in order to imagine new conceptions of work and post-work approaches? And why, in your view, is it necessarily a first step to question our mindset? I did not know that I would be writing about work. Again, um, in retrospect, it feels... I almost feel, you know, ignorant to admit that because, of course, it was going to be about work, but I didn't know that. I really didn't know. I really didn't know what I was going to find in the history of energy, but very quickly reading around the period in which thermodynamics emerged, it became evident to me that the concept of work, the work of engines then mapped onto the work of bodies, the work of countries, the work of empires, that work and energy were were so became so entwined so we have these much longer histories of capitalism and work and empire that predate the emergence of thermodynamics my argument is that thermodynamics gave this modern um, science to the governance of work and sort of further stamped on a sense of scientific objectivity and conformity to quote-unquote natural truth which again this is a useful knowledge for example to making an engine more efficient or even to making bodies more efficient but what happens is the longer standing work ethic that is going is kind of churning forward in anglo-protestant especially anglo-protestant areas gets further valorized through this association with engineering and the and the physics of energy. So once I kind of came to work through the research, when I then started taking that perspective or new understanding and reading contemporary debates about energy, it became clear that although there are so many ways of thinking about energy, you could even think, you know, I'm sure you all have heard about new age ways of thinking about energy um, and other religious perspectives on energy. I mean, energy is certainly not captured by this engineering thermodynamic logic, but I think it is when it comes to how we, how it gets discussed in modern culture and especially in the West. I think this kind of engineer's approach to energy is very dominant. And so, not only by by noticing that that this approach to energy was dominant it is also noticing that that our understanding of work and i keep using the word r and we that's because i associate myself with this kind of northern western culture but i don't mean to say a universal we this western approach to work is still very much how we conceive of energy and by that i mean there's it's very rare to question things like okay, we like purposeful activity, but towards what end? What are we trying, what, what do we really want out of that? There's this assumption that the activity itself, the productivity itself, the ever-expanding realm of capital and energy itself will produce well-being, will produce goodness, and almost will indefinitely. So the the need to me then 
felt to felt like we really needed to start problematizing those assumptions and critique work, not so much a critique of, again, activity or having a purpose or doing something with a passion, but critiquing what kind of work gets valued. And so I, I think this has very practical um, applications. For example, a lot of Green New Deals, especially in the US, a lot of policy around energy is still so centrally um, anchored on jobs and the promise of green jobs. But, you know, there's an assumption that in order to sell an energy transition to people, we have to promise jobs. That's because we have in the US, we still have this culture where to be a waged worker is to become an ideal citizen without consideration for um, what kind of work even gets counted as work. So from a feminist perspective, for example, all the activity and energy expended that is unpaid or underpaid or still invisible, sometimes that is starting to get mentioned in some of the policy, but still the idea of green jobs and the advertisements around it and the narratives around it are like about, you know, becoming a solar panel technician. Thank you so much, Cara, because this uh, makes me think also a little bit of uh, this, uh, this idea of green jobs works more or less in parallel with many discourse of populists also, that in the end uh, they also say that they are trying to defend jobs, is what I see, for example, in Brazil with Bolsonaro and with Trump in the US. Do you see that uh, maybe also this different way of uh, challenging this logic of energy can also make us understand this dispute today between a more sustainable approach, trying to then protect uh, the democracy against the populist uh, takes of work. So how do you see this uh, relationship with your experience in the US as well? Yeah, that... that connection between um, populism and promising jobs, I think, is very much premised upon the fact that to be well, to support a, a life, to have basic needs, a job is necessary. It is, you know, right now, pretty much that is the path to be able to survive. So it's not surprising that then a lot of movements on the left orient themselves around labor. And the way labor, especially of the working class, gets devalued, it's not surprising that the response would be to a revaluation of labor, a celebration of labor. My concern is that in doing so, we seed the ground of talking about what kinds of labor actually are leading to well-being? What kinds of labor do we need? Is there a point where, are there other ways that we can meet people's needs? Is there, is there, are there other paths to well-being? And we can already see that, you know, for example, there are lots of studies that energy like income up to a point is very important for people's well-being and, and reported happiness. And that makes sense. And that's often the argument, especially for 
people who are living in energy poverty. So environmentalists get backed into the corner of, well, how can we reduce energy when so many people still need energy? And the answer is, of course, to a point, energy is associated with well-being. But most of the global north is well beyond that point. And studies show that like income, reported happiness, well-being, and indicators of health, education, and so on, kind of plateau after that point. So this ongoing assumption that in order to fix social problems, what we need is more work and more energy. I think it's important to start with that question rather than um, seed that ground that that is the that is the only real path to ensuring people can meet their needs and live lives of dignity. One picture that comes to my mind uh, in the 19th century of a resistance of workers is always this idea of a break or stopping the machines. And that this was maybe the way that they would subvert and resist against this uh, logic of energy. But then when we are trying to then work and challenge these logics, uh, bringing up ecofeminism, post-work, post-carbon, how then we could uh, maybe figure out uh, pictures of resistance today and work specifically because at that time we have this relationship of work uh, and the parties and a specific idea of anti-politics playing an important role of uh, bringing the ideas and the wishes of workers as an organized uh, uh, group. But now with a finan financialization and the digitalization technology, how can we think work today and the uh, interesting path of uh, resisting this logic of energy? Oh, it's a great question. I love the reference to the Luddites. Um, I often joke that I am a Luddite and I do think that they they sometimes are misunderstood as just being anti-machine when like you said that was a means of resistance not necessarily you know a stance to be opposed to all technology or all machines it was more about the way that machines were being used against their artisanship and and the value and dignity of their of their labor and so i do you know think that it is common for these critical radical ideas that that we're talking about to be lumped as somehow anti-technology or wanting to go back to you know uh, an imagined pre-modern time and i think it's important to resist that framing of these ideas and to say it's not so much about being against machinic or technological um, opportunities as who who gets to come up with those ideas and design those machines and who in whose interests are they operating um, which i do think is in the luddite spirit the machines that they were breaking were the machines that were not in their interest and not being put to work in their for for the betterment of their lives certainly so in terms of resistance of work you know, it is important to, I think, build further connections between worker movements and environmental movements. And the labor movement 
has been instrumental not only in there there certainly is that dimension of the celebration of labor that i think deserves more complexity um as as we've been talking about but at the same time some of the big achievements of the labor movement historically have been things like a shorter working week that those kinds of uh, policy changes, I think, are important in terms of thinking about how we can um, build a more just and sustainable energy system. Yeah. In fact, I was picturing the Spanish Civil War <laughs> and this emblematic uh, picture of this girl with the flag. <laughs> and uh, it's one of the, the, the pictures that uh, remind me of this um, breaking the machines and the strikes and the power of strikes at that time. But uh, yes, I think my last question to you is uh, then uh, uh, what is your current project? How you are still working with uh, energy or are you embracing other kinds of uh, projects that you think that can bring again this eco-feminist idea or a different way of uh, studying the politics of science? Could you share with us what is uh, bothering you now? <laughs> Yeah, in some ways, what I'm working on now is a continuation of the book, and it is veering a little bit away from energy per se, but I think it's still very much um, conceptually relevant and important to talking about energy, and that is growth. I'm starting to write what will become a second book about growth as a science and um, also religion in much the same way that I approached energy. And here I'm interested not only in what we, what we all know is the kind of rapacious commitment to growth that we see in Northern capitalism, but also the way that this preference for movement and dynamism and action enters into the left. And so my question is what is the history of that not only in science so i think there's a lot about assumptions that come out of evolution to do with um, understanding growth and change but also um, what does this commitment to dynamism obscure for us conceptually and i think you know in my book I probably went too fast to saying, well, let's take up the foil of that. You know, let's think about the other side of that lassitude, inertia. What are some of these assumptions we make in, and how are they racialized and gendered? And I think that is important. But even that binary between motion and, and stasis or work and inertia, I think that very way of coding the world is problematic. And you can see it even in the way we understand the more than human world, for example, the idea of vegetative or the idea that plants, you know, didn't move or don't move was very much a way of kind of demoting them on the tree of life because they weren't as active. And of course, now we know much more about plants and we know that they do move and they are very active, but um, I'm interested in how this bias towards activity and dynamism infects, I think, really across the board, how we think about not only work, but life. And um, so, yeah, part of it, too, will be exploring some different um, 
cultural and religious approaches to movement and change. Thank you so much, Karen. It's really, it's really good to see that you keep them the, this track of movement. Uh, makes me remind, uh, reminds me of Pina Bausch, that uh, I don't mind how my dancers move. What I want is to understand how, what movie moved them <laughs> to move. <laughs> so it's really, so thank you so much for sharing uh, what is moving you now. And uh, I, uh, I really would love to keep track of your uh, next steps with your research and leave here also the invite to keep in touch and uh, keep the conversation going. Yeah. Well, what you said is really brilliant in the sense of movement gets at our notion of agency and will, right? Are we the idea that we're passively being moved versus that we move is, um, is really important to people in terms of how they understand the idea of freedom. Well, just thank you very much for uh, sharing your fascinating work with us and um, yeah, looking forward to your next book and uh, what comes out of this uh, really interesting next steps in your research. Thank you, it's was really great conversation. And that's it for today's episode of Carbon Critic. Follow us on Twitter at @democracyiass. Carbon Critique is produced by the Ecopol Research Group, Cecilia Oliveira, Alexandra Tost, Bernardo Jurema, Nicholas Schaeffer, and Pablo Nunes. Anya Krieger is the consultant who has provided technical assistance. The music is by Matheus Alves. If you liked our podcast episode, leave us a comment or a review. If you want to know more about our project and what we do, you can find the link to our webpage in the show notes.